When I was in late elementary school, I had a great obsession. There was an item that I wanted. There was an item that I needed. I had concluded in my mind that should I have this item, that all the pieces of my life would come together, that all that was wrong about me would suddenly be repaired. I don't even know if anybody had explicitly taught me this. I just intuited it. I knew that if I should be able to get myself some suede Sebagos, do you know what suede Sebagos are? They were really cool shoes in 1981 or 82 or 3 or something. I don't know. I don't know why I thought this, but I had been evangelized by a culture that says I am broken, therefore I shop. And I know I'm the only one in here who's ever thought if this one thing about my life would get fixed, if I could just get a new car, if I could just get a new, have you ever wanted a new what? Body, spouse, neighborhood, kitchen. You've thought there's something. If this one thing, maybe it's an impolite thing. It's a sin that's eating your lunch. It's embarrassing. It's awful. It's this way about you that you can't stand. And you think, if I could just get Jesus to fix this, or if I could just have it, then I'd suddenly be fixed. And I sure thought it as an elementary student about getting those suede Sebagos. And lots of people have thought it. Gary Rupp once told us, he was the head of the, he once told us, there's an L in the word. He once told us, he was the counseling, the head of the counseling department at RTS. He said, you know what the saddest day is in a PhD's life? The day after they get the PhD. Because they've been working for years and years for this elusive goal. And when you finally get it, the next day, you're still you. I had a coach, a coach, a coach, isn't that great? A church planting coach early on. He said, I tell church planters, the grass is always greener on the other side until you get there and kill the grass. It's this dynamic that led Oscar Wilde in one place to say, if the gods, if the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. Because sometimes when you think, this is what I need, I must have this, you've localized what the saving force product change of your life would be. You get it and you realize there's, there's still something else. And wouldn't it be the case if you were paralytic? If you're completely paralyzed, wouldn't it be easy to imagine? Wouldn't it be easy to imagine if you couldn't walk and you couldn't use your arms and you couldn't engage in any of the activities that anyone else did, that the main thing about my life is if I could just get healed, I'd never complain again. And Tim Keller says, it's not true. The seeds of discontent grow deep within us. And Jesus asks this man, which is easier, to forgive sins or to tell him to walk? Or he says this in front of these scribes who are questioning his authority. He's not being insensitive. He's recognizing there's something more the man needs than just healing of his body. 
And as we look at this today, as we continue this look at walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, I'd have you reflect with me on this idea that Jesus really does, since He knows our thoughts, and since He made us and He formed us, He knows what we need more than we know what we need. And as we look at this story and we watch Jesus Himself in action, the first thing I want you to see today is that you got to do whatever it takes to get yourself and others to Jesus. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, we're told in Mark chapter 1, sort of oreoed in to all this activity where he's healing people. A man with an evil spirit, Jesus is exercising authority, commanding it out, and people are dumbfounded. What? He obeys? I mean, evil spirits obey him? He drives out evil spirits. He calls disciples. They follow him. He heals a man with leprosy. But right in the middle of this, you've got Jesus, while it's still early, going to a solitary place where he prayed. And Simon comes and looks for him and says, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. There's an agenda. There's a docket you've got to keep today. And Jesus says, let us go elsewhere then so that I may preach because that is why I have come. And I'd have you just look at this and realize, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer in one place said, the Scriptures which never utter an extraneous word, which means they don't ever say anything that's not needful or useful in some way. And the fact that they show Jesus, the Son of God, who has all this authority to command evil spirits, to bring healing to the world, who has a sense of his mission, he had to get off with God to know what he was for and what he was to do. It was after being in a solitary place and praying that he could go and say, now I have to leave the healing of these people and go preach here because this is why I've come. To preach about the inbreaking of the dominion of God and the healing of the world. Do you think that it would be any different for you? That you might yourself need solitary places, getting yourself to Jesus. In one place, Eugene Peterson describes from Melville's book, Moby Dick, this scene, this furious scene where Ahab and his men are chasing this whale. It's a fierce storm. The men rowing the boat are furiously rowing. Their muscles are taut. Their brows are furrowed. Their sweat dripping. It's an intense scene and there's one person on the boat who sits completely still. The harpooner. And it is said of this, the harpooner is said this of, the harpooners of the world to ensure the greatest accuracy with the dart must go to their work out of idleness, not out of toil. In order to shoot straight, he can't come out of work to that work. He has to come out of rest to that work. And I would say for people like us who are constantly tempted because it makes us feel like we're in control of things to stay constantly busy. For people like us who have so many 
responsibility disorders where you think you're responsible for way more than you are. How useful and beneficial it is for you to regularly get away for blocks of time to go to Jesus so that you could come out of idleness into your work, out of idleness into your relationships, regain perspective, regain a sense of whose world it is and who's up to things in it. I can guarantee you it's the best way to wean you off of your illusion of control. One of the things that happens over and over again in this Gospel of Mark is when Jesus is teaching or when he's commanding, people are astounded at his authority. He has the right to forgive sins. He has the ability to act like God. He's claiming to be God. He can command evil spirits out. He can give orders to waves and wind and they obey him. Part of the murmuring, part of the anxiousness of our lives is thinking that we're in control. Thinking that we have ultimate authority. One psychologist said, I had a patient who was deeply depressed. They were deeply depressed. You know what they began to do as part of their treatment? Each day, they went to the Lord and they said, not my will be done, but your will be done. They did this for a year and they found the depression lifting in recognition that sometimes some of our internal psychological maladies are driven by our distrust of God's government of our lives. We don't want Him to be the governor, so we're fighting against reality. We're actively trying to hedge our bets. We're actively trying to form our preferred future when the future's in His hands. And that the freedom comes for us, not trying to control more, trying to control less. Relinquishing more to Him. You are God. And you are good. I ask your will be done, not mine. I say it with fear. I say it with trembling. I say it with suspicion. But take those things away. Your will be done, not mine. You've got to get yourself to Jesus. We've also got to get others to Jesus too. In this story of Jesus healing the paralytic, people heard that he's come home. And so many gathered there, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by the four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat to the paralyzed man was lying on. And I like that phrase, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, They had to use a contingency plan. But the plan all along was I'm going to get my friend to Jesus. Now we don't get to get people to Jesus in bodily form. But Jesus is available to us to get our friends to him now. A priest tells a bride on her wedding day, She's nervous. Some of you have been there. Nervous. She, I don't know if I can go through it. She's, he's counseling her. and He says, let me tell you, this is what I want you to do. When you walk into the wedding ceremony, when you come to the back of the church, you can do this. I just want you to focus. I want you to focus on the aisle. Just focus on the aisle. And as you're walking down the aisle, I want you to look at the altar. I want you to focus. Focus on the altar. And after you focus on the altar, I want you to look at him. I want you to focus on Him. 
I want you to look down at the aisle, and then look at the altar, and then at Him. And just repeat that. Aisle, altar, Him. Aisle, altar, Him. Do you hear the joke there? I'll alter him. Many a wife or husband has thought. You know, there's many married folk in here, many people with employees, many people with children, many people with roommates. And one of the problems that we have is what's wrong with them. And we have this intention, whether stated or not, that I've got to figure out some way to change them. And sometimes we actually think it's our responsibility to change them if they happen to be our children or something like that. It's not your responsibility to change anyone. I don't think. I don't know how you can. But when you start to realize that, that I've got to get people to Jesus, that you realize the truthfulness of what Bonhoeffer said in one place. He said, we realize this, that Jesus alone has access to human hearts, then we'll talk far more to Jesus about a brother than we will to a brother about Jesus. He's not saying we shouldn't evangelize. He's not saying we shouldn't encourage people to look to our Lord. But he is recognizing there's this tendency in us to try to think that somehow or another, through our words, through our actions, through our anger, through our withdrawal, somehow or another we can change people. And what we need to do is say, I'm going to make sure that the people in my life that God's put me around, nobody's going to get them to Jesus more than I am. I've got to Get my children to Jesus. I've got to get my spouse to Jesus. I've got to get my coworkers to Jesus because He alone has access through the spy of the human heart called the Holy Spirit to, to alter people, to change them, to help them realize, to help them see, to help them know. And if any of you have ever tried to alter someone yourself, how did that work? It worked pretty well for you. Most of the marriages that I get to look up, look at closely, I see that working really well all the time. People love to get changed by their significant other. It's free advice. You've got to get yourself and you've got to get others to Jesus, whatever it takes. Joan Evanson said in one place or another, you know, all you have to do to drift away from the Lord is nothing. That's all you have to do. The entropic principle. All you have to do is nothing. And I can tell you this, there must be something about prayer. There must be something about these words of Scripture that are nutrient-dense and rich and formative for our lives because when I am away from them, it sounds like the worst thing in the world to me to go to them. And I routinely think I am being acted on by some alien force in me or some force out there to be actively kept from the Scriptures, to be actively kept from prayer, because when I come to these things, I say, holy cow! This is something I can use on my life! This is, gives me buoyancy. This gives me power. This gives me direction. But so much of the time, I think, I'd much rather eat a bag of Cheetos and read the Bible. How's reading the Bible going to help me? Am I going to get fired for saying that? You feel that way too. And it helps me say, man, must, there must be power here that someone doesn't want me getting near. Someone wants me to be deceived. 
so that I don't think there's anything here for me. There's not anything there for me when I go to prayer. So it keeps me away. But when I go there, oh, when I bring people there, I start to believe he's alive. I start to believe that he has power, that he does have authority. And then I, I find my shoulders not feeling so crushed. Get yourself and others to Jesus. And when you get there, you realize this. Jesus sees and responds to faith. These men, after digging through the ceiling, they've got a lawsuit on their hands, you know. They just destroyed another man's property. This should be a little bit startling. It's a full house. It would be a little crazy if all of a sudden that somebody saw it hit you. Like in a cartoon, and you just saw a person dropping right there on Chris Gregory. It would be a little alarming, wouldn't it? And it says that Jesus saw their faith, and he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He saw their faith. How did he see their faith? Well, he just saw some people who were so prepared to act as if Jesus could do something. They were willing to risk a lot, they were willing to look foolish. Trust me, I know you people. If you were in a similar spot, you would feel like, oh my gosh, what are we doing here? We're going to open up this, we're going to cut open somebody's roof? Think about who came up with the plan. I got a plan. Uh, It's too crowded in there. The fire marshal says no more inhabitants. Uh, I got, hey, did you bring your uh, trove? Did you bring your shovel? Yeah, yeah, I always bring it with me. It's out in the camel there, the camel trunk. Well, let's just dig a hole in the ceiling. Yeah, oh, that's a great idea. Everybody will think that's really neat. You just destroy someone's ceiling. And then we're going to drop a man. What are you thinking? But you know what? We're thinking this guy can do something about our friends, so we're just going to do whatever it takes. And Jesus sees that. These guys are just, they're, they're acting crazy to get to me. They just believe me so much. They just trust me so much. They just so expect that I'm going to do something that they're willing to do whatever it takes to get their friend to me. And he loves it. See, Jesus has this magnetic attraction to people who expect things from him. He can't, he just can't help himself. And Luther, Martin Luther would say that faith is, this, is primarily a receptive capacity. You know, like a big... I know this lady in, in Hinkle has got a big old rain barrel at her house. It just catches the rain. It just is there. It's just a big old barrel, and the rain just comes, and it just it expects the rain's coming. It's just going to catch it when it comes. And that's what faith is, is you're expecting. You're, you're prepared to act as if it's true. And Jesus is always seeing that and always thinking it's wonderful. So if you... If you start to believe this, that Jesus sees and responds to faith just as he saw these, men's, these men and their faith. And he loved it. You know what it's going to help you do? It'll help you with thorny decision making. A lot of you have trouble making decisions. How do I move forward? Now some of you might get a specific word from the Lord. Great. If you get one, obey it. But sometimes you know you'll seek the Lord. You don't know what to do. Do I go here? Do I go here? Do I... Move right or do I move left? And you're dead with deciding. 
And if you start to believe Jesus loves and sees faith, you know what you'll start to do? You'll realize there's a lot of decisions that I make that the main thing about them is, is it trusting Jesus to be on the other side of them? A lot of the decisions I make, I'm afraid to make because I'm envisioning a, a God-less future. And the way I honor Jesus is making the decision, trusting Him to be on the other side. I can remember being a college, I mean a high school senior. And I was, I was just as indecisive then as I am now. And I was deciding between two colleges, where am I going to go? And so I called on the phone, I think the night before, I, I was working ahead of time. I called Krubrock, as some of you know, who had gone to one of the colleges. And I called Hamilton Brock, his cousin, who had gone to the other one. They were out these. And I inquired with them, I, I interviewed them, interrogated them, troubled them. So they said, leave me alone, man. But I remember Crew told this to me. He said, you know, this is so good. It stuck with me as a 17-year-old. You know, it's not as if God's going to leave you if you pick one or the other. He just took the pressure off the thing and said, you know, underneath here, the problem is a trust issue. He didn't say it like that. It's just a trust issue. Sometimes we're scared to make decisions because we just don't want to fail. Because we're envisioning a future where God ain't. But Jesus loves and sees faith. And so there's so many things that the thing for you to do is, is to act, trusting that Jesus is on the other side. That he'll be there when you get there. When the future comes, so will Jesus be there. When you're acting by faith, it'll help you move through muddled situations. It also, invariably, will feel foolish to you. Sometimes, you know, you have a chance to talk to somebody about the Lord. Sometimes you have a chance to maybe to pray to somebody or to even bear witness to something God's done in your life. And have you ever done that? And as you're about to do it, you're going, oh, if, if you don't do it actually inside, you're doing this. Oh, gosh. Or is that only me? I'm a preacher who gets paid to do religious things for people, like pray for them. And I still feel silly when I say to somebody, especially a non-Christian, would you mind if I prayed for you? No one has ever hit me in the nose when I said that. No one has said, no, you can't pray for me, you evil, wicked person. What's wrong with you? Everybody likes to be prayed for, even people who don't believe it does anything. But yet still I feel foolish every time. And I think a lot of acting in faith is going to make you feel foolish sometimes. You're going to have to risk something. It's going to feel a little silly. You know, I think that's why in James 5, he says, if you're sick... Call the elders to pray for you. To anoint you with oil and lay hands on you and pray for you. Because I know you, most of you, you know, by the way, we do that. We've done that for many people and we'll do it for you. Just call us. But you know, I know how I work. I think, ah, I just feel silly. I don't want to interrupt like 12 people's schedules. I'll just pray by myself. That's easier. But it makes me think there's something about the act of the foolishness, the trust of saying, I'm going to get some other people involved in this and we're all going to interrupt our schedule to do this something that feels like nothing called prayer because we're going to trust Jesus to do something about it. Sometimes bringing other people in makes you feel silly, but you need to exercise the faith to bring them in. And Jesus sees it and he's drawn to it. And he acts because of it. 
So give yourself, get yourself and others to Jesus, whatever it takes. Know that Jesus sees and responds to faith. And then notice how he heals and he cleanses. Jesus knew, after he said, son, your sins are forgiven, the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that they were thinking this, and he said to them, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home. And he got up, took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they were praising God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. It would be easy, wouldn't it, to imagine, as we said at the beginning, this man, the thing he thinks he most needs is to be able to get up and walk. And Jesus is talking about his sins needing to be forgiven. The idea here is that Jesus not only is going to heal him, but he's going to deep clean him. He sees us and he gives us what we most need. One time or another, C.S. Lewis said this, often we will go to Jesus with some embarrassing sin or some trouble in our life or a relationship will bust up, we'll lose a job, some calamity will befall us. And so we'll go to Jesus. It might even be the way that we get converted. We'll come to Him and we'll start having faith in Him. We'll start walking with Him. But He says, sooner or later what's going to happen is Jesus is going to He's going to confuse us because we think we came to Jesus and we would like to have a nice little cottage that's basically fine. We might need him to change out a few fixtures here and there. You know, that doorknob doesn't work quite right. You know, level out the door because it jams. But Jesus sometimes comes in and he starts knocking down a whole wall in the house. You're like, what are you doing? It's because we were content with the little cottage, he says, but Jesus is building something entirely different, a mansion out of us. So he has these intentions for us. They're way beyond what we think that we need. And it's important to see this here because when Jesus has this chance to heal this paralytic, he uses it as an opportunity to put himself squarely in opposition to the religious leaders. He knows if he says, you're forgiven, that that's the same thing as saying, I'm claiming to be God. And that's how they take it. You know, that's why he winds up getting killed later, for claiming to be God, blaspheming, taking God's prerogative, who alone can forgive sins. In other words, if you've done something, you've done it against me, Jesus is saying. That's why I can forgive your sins. Well, we think, or it's easy to think, if I can just get Jesus, if I can just get God to give me this one thing in my life, maybe it's a pair of Sebagos, maybe it's a new car, maybe if I can just get this new job, sometimes you might even say, Lord, if you'll give me this, I'll never ask you for anything again. Please don't lie. You will ask for things again. You should ask for things again. Don't make deals like that. That's Don't do that. But you think you know what you need. The paralytic thought he knew what he needed. He needs to walk. 
And he did need to walk, but Jesus knew there was something else. He needed, he needed to be right with God. And he alone could do something about that. I heard a talk this week by Brene Brown. She's a sociologist at the University of Houston. And she was telling the story how one morning she was in her kitchen and she just sets the scene this way. I'm all alone in my kitchen. No one else is in the house. I'm enjoying a large cup of coffee. I have on a white pair of pants and a pink sweater set, which is not a word that I ever use. And I think it's important to the story, I guess. A pink sweater set and white pants and I'm enjoying this cup of coffee. Whatever. <laughs> I'm enjoying. <laughs> Did you get what you needed? <laughs> All right. White sweater, yeah, pink sweater set, white pants, cup of coffee. And she says, I'm sitting here enjoying this big old cup of coffee, and I drop it. It hits the floor, and see, I'm, I'm about to have to leave to go give a lecture. I'm ready to go, and I drop my cup of coffee on the floor, and it splatters all over the kitchen and all over my white pants. And she said, my immediate reaction was to say, dang you, Steve, to blame her husband, who was not there. (laughs) She didn't say, dang you, Steve, but something else. Her immediate reaction without even thinking was to blame her husband. Poor Steve wasn't even there. But you know why? She went on to explain. Because the night before, I told Steve, who goes to play water polo with his friends, you've got to be home by 10 o'clock because I can't go to sleep at night if you're not here. Well, Steve stayed out talking to his friends. He didn't come home until 1030, which means I didn't get to go to bed when I thought I was going to go to bed. I went to bed much later, which meant the next morning I needed two cups of coffee instead of one cup of coffee. And I was drinking my second cup, which Steve made me drink. (laughs) And she said, all the women in the audience right now are nodding their heads like, yes, of course. I understand how it's Steve's fault. And all the men are going, oh, so that's how it works. (laughs) But you know, there's this sense in you. It's really kind of a strategy of self-atoning. We blame because we need to deflect. We feel anger or guilt inside. We blame other people. And you, you see how quickly she said she did that? That's how it is, isn't it, right? It's just indigenous in your heart. Nobody has to teach you. Here, little Johnny, let me teach you how to blame your friends for when something goes wrong. Let me teach you how to blame your father or your mother. No, they just know. We just know how to do it. We have all these self-atonement strategies. Do you ever do something so that you won't feel guilty? Oh, I'm just, if I I say no, then I'm just going to feel guilty. So you just do it. You're always trying to ameliorate your own guilt in a way. And Jesus knows that's a main thing about us. There was once a man, Carl Menninger, a psychiatrist, wrote a book called Whatever Happened to Sin. And he described this story, and I close with this. This scene where a man was in the loop in Chicago. And he was standing in plain clothes. And he was standing amidst all this pedestrian traffic. People walking to and fro. And every now and again, somebody would walk by. And he would just shout out, guilty! 
and he would point his finger at them. Then he'd put his hand down, and people would walk again. He'd stand there quietly, and someone else would walk by, and he'd point again, guilty! And on and on he went. And Menninger says, my friend who was there said that an onlooker at this, after this happened over and over who saw these people as they were pointed at and the words guilty uttered over them, they would, their eyes would dart to and fro. They would look at him in an eerie kind of way. They would look around and see if anybody else saw it. And then they would scurry on. And he said, my friend who was there heard this from a bystander who asked the question, how does the man know? How does he know which ones are, how does he know about their guilt? Because they all seemed like he was telling on them. They all acted like he had goods on them. When it comes to dealing with your inner state before God, we're all paralytics. You can't fix that. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. There's not enough good you're going to do to erase any bad you've done. There are plenty of things you should have done and didn't. There are plenty of things you didn't do and should have. And Jesus is forecasting here at the beginning to this paralytic son, not only are you going to walk, everything that stands between you and God, all of your God-ignoring, all of your tendency, all of us, our tendencies to live as if God doesn't exist, to live as if, as if He's not good, to live as if we're the governors of our lives, to live as if we're the ones who are deciding what's right for us. He says, I'll look at that and I'll go to a cross and I'll let God point His finger at me and say, guilty! So that none of you ever will be before Him. I'll let God point His finger at me and say, Guilty! So that no one who trusts in me will ever know the accusation and the pointing finger of God. Jesus is going to take that from us. If you believe that, and you live as if it's true, then you're going to keep running to him over and over again because he's got no goods on you. We can be the most honest people on planet earth because there is no one who can know about our guilt that our Savior doesn't already know about and He's paid for fully. So we can take our friends to Him and we ourselves can go to Him. And we can keep after it no matter what it costs, trusting that He loves it when we trust Him and that He knows what we need more than we do. Will you be healed? Will you be cleansed? Then keep getting to Jesus over and over who had the finger of God on him saying, you are guilty, so my people will never be. Amen.